All right, this is the Yay. I'm Rich Clay and Norman Jean. This is the Yay, where we talk about life in the theater and the theater of life. Yay! One of my favorite actors, I say this all the time, but I really do mean it. He's the favorite Avi Jacobson. Avi, how are you doing, man? I'm doing really well, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, Avi Jacobson, uh, you and I were on the stage. We did one tin in the shade. And uh, you are in a, uh, well, you're in rehearsals for a show now. I think the last time you were on stage was one man, two governors. That's correct, yes. And uh, now you're um, rehearsing for, I believe it's a white man on the bus? That's right, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, we can talk a little bit about that. Of course, we're going to go into other things, but uh, mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about okay. that. Yeah. So, white man on the bus, briefly, and I have to talk about it really carefully so I don't let any spoilers out. Okay. Um, uh, but it's a play by a player, a Philadelphia playwright by the name of Bruce Graham, and it's been very successful in Philadelphia. I can't remember if it made it to Off-Broadway. I think it did. Um, in any case, it's a play about race in America, and it centers around, I'll just say who the characters are in the opening premise, and I'll leave it at that. Uh, there is a white, suburban, middle-aged or pre-retirement uh, financial advisor, very successful, who's married to a woman who teaches uh, in an inner-city school. So they're two of the characters. He's the main character, the title character, white, man on the bus, white guy on the bus, if you like. And um, he has a curious habit or a curious custom of uh, taking the bus every weekend, every Saturday, and it's a bus that goes from the inner-city, predominantly African-American ghetto to the prison. And no one can really figure out why he's on this bus. Um, he befriends a young uh, African-American woman who uh, also takes this bus uh, to the prison or toward the prison every week. And we don't know initially why it is that he does what he does, um, what he's looking for there, what the relationship is between the two of them. And this develops into a very powerful story about race in America, about class in America, about social justice, about uh, hypocrisy as far as... Um, some elements within the liberal community. Um, I'm just talking about themes. I'm not talking sure, about sure, sure. Um, <clears throat> It talks about race and racial issues and racial disparities in America as an outgrowth of slavery. Mm-hmm. It's very cleverly done. And, yeah. um, it reminds me, just the premise itself, there are echoes of Get Out. Um, if you saw the Jordan Peele movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you see Get Out? Uh, yes. Yeah. Was it done someplace else in the Bay Area? Because I feel like I've maybe I just heard about this before. White Guy on the Bus? Yeah. I think it was done. I can't. I don't want to misspeak and say what theater, but yes, it has been done in the Bay Area. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. I thought I'd heard of it. Yeah, we'll talk more about that because there are lots of interesting issues that we can talk about. And also just about you as an actor and mm-hmm. how the Bay Area has been treating you as far as theater is concerned and what you've been doing. Mm-hmm. Um, Norman, as I begin each uh, podcast, how was your week? I'm done. <laughs> school and school goes another week, but um, mm-hmm. I had kids perform. I guess right before we did the last yeah. podcast, we should let Avi know where you work. This is up in Richmond at the East Bay Center for the Performing Arts. I see. Uh-huh. And and the kids are well, they have a diploma program, so it's open. It's not. Um, it's just a nonprofit. It's not affiliated with any particular school or anything. But um, it's and it's. People will say, well, it's an after-school program. Well, the hours are after school. But what we've come up with is um, a diploma program. So if a kid commits to it, they part of what they get is basically a scholarship to be in the program. Um, they're committing to three or four years of taking classes 
pretty much every evening, at least four evenings a week, um, where they're, well, actually, I'd say probably at least two evenings a week. But they're taking dance, they're taking some form of music, and they're taking theater and digital arts, which chain becomes all kinds of different. Transmedia, that's what we call mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, is there a show at the end of the... That's one of the weirdest things about the program, is there's not a, sh- there's a showcase... And when I was first hired, they would tell me, so you're going to get, when I was first hired, they would tell me, you get six minutes. So you've got a class of potentially 20 kids. Right. Um, typically, I have a class of less than a dozen, um, about half a dozen on average, I would guess. Um, but still, at the end, we're supposed to do some sort of presentation in six minutes. Yeah. Well, what can you do in six I've, minutes? I've never stayed yeah. in six minutes. I've never done it. And they would say to me, well, everybody doesn't have to perform. And I'm like, wait a minute. You want me to treat this like a class, which means for, you know, eight weeks, nine weeks, I'm pushing these kids through some skill, you know, based, skill-focused thing without that beautiful cherry of we're going to perform it? I don't even know what that is. So... I've never been under six minutes, mm-hmm. and um, and what I learned pretty quickly was, oh, I need to shape what I'm doing, because it also has a kind of a drop-in quality. Some weeks you have three kids, some weeks you have nine kids. <laughs> and for the showcase, you do scenes, or you do monologues? Um, well, it depends on... It, it is not defined well, which to... They're lucky they got me because I have to make sense of it for myself. I'm not just going to try to fill in, check the boxes, and do what you require me to do. I have to do something that I think will be useful to the kids. So I always do some sort of scene work. Uh, we did uh, the opening scene to Liz Estrada. We rehearsed the opening scene to Liz Estrada once. I had two kids not show up day of performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, all kinds of different things. I'm right now Jones, and if I get a big class, uh, during the summer we do a more open program, and I can do a bigger class. And four years ago now, yeah, four years ago, or four and a half years ago now, I did um, uh, the opening to All all in the Timing. Oh, that's a great show. I've done that. It's an amazing show. Well, the opening scene is just two people, right? Which one? It's, Um, it's, um, what is it called? Um, It's the cafe scene. Oh, it's uh, the Philadelphia, that one? No. No, no, no. no. It's uh, just, um, is this seat taken? Oh, yeah, a sure thing. Sure thing. That's what it is. They see me go ding. But I had a summer class of over 20 kids. I figured out how to break that down so that I could make like 27 rolls out of that, um, which had some repeats. Right. And we did it in 11 minutes. So, see, I've never stayed within their time frame. This year I did a Spoon River Anthology. Mm-hmm. Um, just uh, like 10 or 11 pieces from Spoon River. Um, with a group of kids who, some of them were just starting out, some of them had a little bit of theater experience. And what I did is I made them, I had a row of 10 seats to represent our cemetery. Mm-hmm. And every few monologues, I would just make everybody get up and move, or almost everybody get up and move mm-hmm. to become a new person, right. become a new thing. Right. Um, and it was fun. It was a lot of fun. That's a great way to work. But that's working with kids that don't have a huge theater background. I just finished two days at the School of the Arts in San Francisco, the Ruth Asawa, to be official, Ruth Asawa School of the Arts. Mm-hmm. Um, Elizabeth Carter runs the program now, and I, we're old friends, old colleagues, and she's had me sub for her for years. I've subbed for her, and now she's officially running the program, and she said, you have to become an employee, so now I am 
officially in the school district mm-hmm. as a teaching, not teaching artist, I forget what, there's a title, Re- artist in residence. Uh-huh. And, uh, and so I came in for two days. I've been in four or five days so far this semester. Mm-hmm. I'm like, hmm. Um, but I came in because next week is the last week of school, and they all have to perform monologues. So I got to do basically coaching on Shakespeare monologues. Cool. Oh, oh wow. Now that's fun. It was a lot of fun, but it was two days. So I was subbing for two different teachers. They do Suzuki method, if you're familiar with that at all. Not um, the theater, no. It's modern Japanese. Um, yeah, that's right. So I'm familiar with it. I come from music. I come from classical music. I sort of yeah. transitioned into theater about eight years ago. So I know Suzuki for instrumentalists or violinists and so forth. Right, right. There's that Japanese method. This is an outgrowth of World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, Buto also, is, which is a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, they said, we can't do the traditional things the way that we've always done them after this cataclysmic event has happened in our culture, mm-hmm. there needs to be something new. So they take the traditional forms and they sort of meld them mm-hmm. um, and add some new stuff. Buto is one of the freakiest, scariest things. If you've never seen a Buto show, you should go see one. They are, they are mesmerizing theater. I was once in an auditorium of 700 people, and the opening performer came out in this slow movement, got center stage, stopped, Knelt, and they came in on this, they did this low walk that mm-hmm. is just incredible. Came in, knelt, took a breath. You could feel the whole audience take the breath with them. And then when we had all got to capacity, this performer just kept going, and you felt like you were trapped in your seat. Yep. And then when that release happened, 700 people just sort of giving wow. in time. Wow. Well, they're learning some of this stuff. I haven't done Suzuki I haven't done Suzuki in over a decade. I think that's a that's a, <laughs> a serious understatement. Um, but I was going to come in for the teacher, and I said, okay, I can't do your Suzuki class. I can do something else. Here are some other things I could do. And Elizabeth said, well, they're going to be doing, all of them are going to be doing Shakespeare. This is just one of their classes. Mm-hmm. And I said, so I'm going to have the same group of kids for two different teachers, but the same group of kids for two days. So, okay, I got it. So I came in and we did punctuation work day one. Um, because people don't always realize that this is a key part of Shakespeare. It's, it is like music. Shakespeare scores. Yep. The, the scripts are scored. Iambic pentameter. It's iambic pentameter. It's also punctuation. And yep. that's where you learn things like, like the triplet in music, which is, you know, you understand the concept. I'm sure somebody has done a philosophical dissertation on what that is. Because it breaks out of structure, but it stays within structure. Mm-hmm. Shakespeare has all kinds of notation that can give you that. And so I was teaching that. And the easy thing is at the end of a line, a period, is a full stop. You finish a breath. At the very least, you finish a breath. But when a period is midline, you finish a thought, but you move on to a new thought. Mm-hmm. And it could be inflection. It could be that you change the pace of what you say. Or it can be just physically, you change your orientation. So um, I, I did a demonstration, and Elizabeth was in the other room. She's in her office doing paperwork, and she hears me doing this. She says, we don't do that enough. That makes so much sense. And I'm like, no, it's scary as hell, because you're performing for a group of people who are focused, laser-focused on what you're doing. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this, and if I make mistakes, you get to clock me on it, and it becomes a learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. I'm going back to my days at Duke Ellington because we had to do Shakespeare and monologues and how scary it was because we had to do the enamored contaminant. And you can right. imagine 
15, 16, 17-year-old kids trying to pick this up right. and absorb it, plus absorb what they're saying as well as how they say it. Well, I was lucky because they already have or they're supposed to have their pieces memorized. I'm like, so you're at this place where you basically have – you've gone out in the forest and you've chopped down a chunk of wood and you brought it back. You know the size of it. You know the texture of it, hopefully. You know some basic things about it. Now, let's see what Shakespeare is telling you about what's inside that. Right. And so let's do that. So I did um, Orsino. Um, and what I love is he gets to, um, what is it, um, upon a bank of violets, um, stealing and giving odor, period. Enough, no more. That's all one line. Stealing and giving odor, enough, no more. Mm-hmm. It's not so sweet now as it was before. And so I was showing them how you could do it where you go, stealing and giving odor. <sighs> enough, no more. But I'm like, then you're ruining the music. The music does not give you a rest there. Mm-hmm. The music gives you this huge shift in the music. So hit that moment, finish that first thing, and then move on to the next mm-hmm. thing. And it was great to just spend one day doing that with all their pieces and then come back the next day and say, now show me what you got. <laughs> and then seeing how the kids handle it. Awesome. That's fantastic. And so next week will be the end. Not, not Next this. week they are doing their finals with Elizabeth. <laughs> I have to talk to her. I, I think I've actually got the time free. I may come and sit in. Mm-hmm. All right. Avi, have you ever done any teaching for kids? I have actor? done teaching, and I, I could almost say it was in a former life. I, um, <gasps> I came here from Israel uh, 21 years ago, <laughs> and in my youth, in my 30s, or before that actually, my late 20s, um, I did teach. I taught English in a high school. Um, this was in Israel where English was taught as a second language, as a foreign language. Um, it was a great experience working with, this, working with these kids. Um, I've also taught, or you could call it teaching, at uh, a performing arts camp for teenagers, which was just wonderful. Where? I mean, that was a great experience as well. So I, I have where, where was that? That was also in Israel. Oh, okay, cool. That was also in Israel. Um, so I haven't taught as a primary profession, mm-hmm. um, but... Uh, I mean, I brought up four kids, and I sure I've taught in extracurricular programs. So, absolutely, that was very, very cool. Speaking of kids, how's Dexter? How's the family? Um, so, we're getting to these weird. Uh, my stepson mm-hmm. is sixteen, almost seventeen. Uh-huh. He's a junior. Mm-hmm. Things are going great. Mm-hmm. We're moving towards the holiday. Um, my wife is Jewish, mm-hmm. so she, when she and her husband split, there was no discussion about Christmas. Mm-hmm. He gets Christmas, and that's the way it's always been. Right. Which was not so bad when he was here in the Bay Area, but he just moved to New Mexico. I see. And I had to bring up with her, well, one, so winter break is coming. How long is Dexter going to be gone? Well, he's just going for Christmas. Has anybody had that conversation? Right. And what are you expecting? What do you want? And it's winter break. So if you want some downtime with your son, Mm -hmm. you need to, well, ask for it isn't the right word. They have horrible communication. Negotiate. But it needs to be on the table. Right. It needs to be in his consciousness so that it's in his consciousness when he talks to his dad. And what she doesn't realize is she tells him stuff, and then he goes and he talks to his dad about it. Well, he does like any kid does. Right. Dad said, Mom said, yeah. and knowing that you can't use those terms. In physics, they say water seeks the path of least resistance, right? Well, so, which yeah. is what he does. But, uh, so that means he doesn't say, Mom says, but he says, I have to go back because. And so but none of that conversation would happen. So I brought it up. 
Ooh, prickles, which is why when you ask me, I'm like, eh. I finally this morning had to say, so I know that when we have these sorts of discussions, they're hard. And I'm going to keep doing it because otherwise this conversation wouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. Possibly until a a plane ticket had already been bought. Mm -hmm. That would have been ugly. Instead, what's happened is, well, we're going to get a couple of days, and then you're going to go. And then you're going to come back, and the she loves chores. Uh, she doesn't love chores on a regular basis, but she loves having little projects. Mm-hmm. So they're going to paint his room. Mm-hmm. He wants his room painted. They're going to paint his room. He has to be here to help do the prep and do the initial, you know, um, that the undercoat. Mm-hmm. Um, see, I really don't know anything about these things. <laughs> um, and then um, they may get a little bit of it done, and then he'll be gone, and then he'll get back with enough time so they can get it done and. Let him sleep someplace else for a couple of days while it, you know, outgasses. And I'm like, okay, so this may not have happened or it may have been way more explosive if I hadn't brought this up. But every time I brought it up, it was prickly. Yeah. And so I had to say this morning, I just need you to know this and to know that I know this and that I'm going to totally respect it. But I'm going to enter into these prickly zones every now and then. Well, you're doing it on her behalf because if she doesn't have it on her mind, then it does become explosive because it happens at the last minute. I'm gone through this because I don't have have any kids. But luckily, everyone's in everyone's in D.C. Dad didn't go off anywhere. Imagine if he went off to California or whatever. That would have been much more. Yes. So, in any case, well, well, that's. I mean. The holiday season, I was telling my good friend Craig Dickerson, you know, it's, it can become very, very, um, what does he call it, charged. That's his word for it because everyone doesn't have their life like, you know, the Brady Bunch or whatever, you know. Right. Nobody <laughs> has their life like the Brady Bunch. <laughs> exactly. It's never really idyllic. And we had, remember we had uh, Alicia Van Kogelgen who is – remember she – last Christmas – she came on the program to talk about how to deal with Christmas as a Jewish person. Oh, right. And how difficult that was. Well, I mean, that's what you say holidays, and I'm like, well, my holidays just finished. So <laughs> yeah. now it's like, okay, dealing with – and I never thought of it that way until I married Mara. And mm-hmm. it was like, for me, I was to sort of hunker down and dealt with Christmas. And now it's more like, mm-hmm. oh, there's a, there's a consciousness that is – that's that thing that happens over there. Every now and then you have to deal with it and encounter it. But for the most part – just go about your life and you don't worry about yeah. it. Is Hanukkah still going on? No. No, it's not just Sunday. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. how was how your Hanukkah? Um, so it was good, and I'm going to pause on that question, and I'm going to kind of build on what oh, you please, said, Norbert. Right. So you know I'm Jewish, of yes. course, and, like, I can't hide it, right? <laughs> uh, and uh, But you, by default, you ask me, how is my Hanukkah? But you don't really know if I'm a practicing or what I do. And yet That's people, true. and I run it, and I don't say that to put you mm-hmm. on the spot. Uh, sure. But... It's very interesting because um, I've experienced this in the workplace, even from other Jews. They're like, oh, so Passover, so how are you doing with the matzah now? Um, right. So we are, we're very secular Jews, and we always have been. I've had uh, an interesting kind of journey with Judaism. Of course, I lived in Israel for well, yeah, seven years. Yeah, yeah. Um, in Israel, I actually arrived in Israel in my teen years. I grew up in Philadelphia. And um, I, uh, I was brought up as what's called a, a conservative Jew, which is kind of middle of the road, leaning toward tradition. And I took uh, a very keen interest in Jewish tradition, Jewish ritual, Jewish religion, and so forth. Um, and I was pretty fluent in Hebrew when I got there. And mm-hmm. now I'm, I'm bilingual in Hebrew. But there's an interesting thing about Israel, which is um, now maybe a little bit less so, but certainly when I was there, there were two poles. Either you were an Orthodox Jew, right. which meant you went to synagogue every Saturday, you know, you mm-hmm. ate kosher, you practiced 
all of the religions you probably have to wear the hat. I mean, no, that's no. like ultra religious. Okay, but you can it. wear a little yarmulke. Oh, you, yeah. you know, you, yeah, I mean, right. in, in what they call modern orthodox, typically you'll see them wearing a little knitted knit yarmulke that looks, right. that looks yeah. a little kippah that looks like a pot holder. Right. Um, and so either you're that at a minimum, right, modern mm-hmm. orthodox, and then up to sure. ultra orthodox, or you're just nothing, totally secular, basically mm-hmm. atheist, and right. there was no middle ground. Mm-hmm. There was no none of this. Reform Judaism. There were no reforms. There was maybe one reform synagogue at that time in the Tel Aviv area, mm-hmm. um, and it was thought of as kind of you know an odd bird. It was thought of. <laughs> I bet. Um, so, uh, and my wife comes from an even more secular background. She comes from a sort of uh, her her parents were uh, kibbutz members, kibbutz, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. mm-hmm. and they were kind of socialist, atheist, kind of... The hippies of Israel. Yeah, Judaism, Judaism as a culture, Judaism as a heritage, but not right. as a religious sure, practice. Sure. So we've always um, kind of had this dilemma of, well, what do we do during the holidays? Because we've right. le- we're not religious Jews, we've never really celebrated... We did a little bit in the very beginning when the kids were young, and that kind of faded away. Well, so, see, um, so Mara is also secular, and but it was a ritual in the house. So they, so she does like Passover becomes weird because it isn't really religious. It's just them trying to remember as kids mm-hmm. what they did. Right, right. <laughs> so bizarre. So, so as far as Hanukkah is concerned, we started when we got here. We, I guess. Gosh, it, it, it's, it takes a moment to remember, but we we celebrated a very, very secular kind of Christmas. No tree, none of that stuff. Uh-huh. Of course, no, you know, Christian religious content right. at all. But presents, you know, and, right. and so forth. We put lights up in front of the house on some years. Mm-hmm. Um, Hanukkah, sometimes we'd light candles, sometimes we wouldn't. Um, we'd serve typical Hanukkah foods on, on Hanukkah. Right. We didn't really do much with Hanukkah. We, I think we, we gravitated more toward Christmas through the years. This year, uh, our relatives from Israel were here staying with us. They often come. And this year they came during Hanukkah. It's my sister-in-law and my nephew. And, of course, even for secular Jews in Israel, all Jewish holidays are a big thing because they're part of the national culture. So we lit candles and we made latkes and we did all of that stuff. So so we did actually do Hanukkah. Did you do the donuts? We didn't do the donuts. And it's interesting. I didn't know about the donuts until I moved to Israel. It wasn't part of my tradition growing up. It's not part of the Eastern European Jewish tradition. They have latkes, anything that's got oil and grease and is disgusting, that's right. part of the Hanukkah. It's, it's, it's true. It is so true. Right. Yeah. So the, the reason they do that is yeah. because the oil lamp that burned for eight days. So oil's a big theme. Interesting. Oh, right. Mars in the middle of making schmaltz. Right. Right. we're going to have more matzo ball soup. And she's like, so then I do this, and then I put this in the refrigerator, and that's, we're going to make schmaltz. And right. I was like, really? I'm so glad this word I've heard my whole life now has, like, very tangible meaning. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, so we didn't do the donuts. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we did kind of all the food things around Hanukkah. We did the presents things around Hanukkah, and that was kind of it. So the short answer is my Hanukkah was good. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's interesting hearing different cultures and all this. Like, I have a good friend who celebrates, um, oh, shoot, uh, it's Kwanzaa. Right. Right and, after Christmas, yes. Right, right after Christmas. So I'm always interested in the, the different different ways and how people celebrate. I've been on that for a few years. I've, I've Back way off of it. So yeah, I, I try. I just try to be respectful. Sure, I just absolutely. Try to be respectful of that's your thing. You're, you're doing that yay for you and happy yeah. holidays and, and moving. Right, on. of course. <laughs> Let's get into current events. Yeah. Uh, it's been eventful week. 
uh, I'll just run them. I'll just run them off in and let me know, you know, what what hit your fancy. <laughs> so on Monday, Trump payoffs to women were private transactions, not campaign contributions. That's what Trump says. Right. That was Monday. Also, this happened a week, couple of weeks back. I never talked to you about this. The kid that went to North Sentinel Island to deliver the word of God to these Aborigines people. <gasps> Who have been murdered as he debarked from his boat? Exactly, and it's just—it's absolutely crazy. I they mean, still haven't gotten the body yet, have you? No, and he was warned many, many times: don't go there, don't fellowship the folks who don't want to be fellowshiped to. Leave them alone. So I hate to introduce something yes. from outside his religious tradition, yes. but that's karma, man. I mean, <laughs> and it's, I mean I, you know, yeah, I hate to laugh. And, of course, I'm a Christian, and, you know, we, I mean, Orthodox cr- Christians, you know, they're, they're right. fundamental Christians who are like, hey, listen, this is your job. You must fellowship you must folks. Witness, yeah. And I don't necessarily believe that. I mean, you know, if folks want to know about it, then tell them. But if they don't, right. then don't. Witness by lifestyle. Right, exactly. There's nothing more that has more integrity or beauty exactly. than seeing somebody who lives their beliefs. Okay, so a woman arrested at an HRA officer sitting on the floor. Oh, did you hear? Okay, so this is a black woman. Yeah. I don't know if you heard about this. But they, she's done. I mean, they, they finally, like, they dropped the charges. I think they dropped the charges. They did drop the charges. This is yeah. basically a black woman who was arrested for just sitting in an office. She's basically yeah. trying there to let no seats available, so yeah. she sat on the floor. They asked her not to sit on the floor. They told her to leave, basically, because there was no space. And she's like, I'm here because I need services. And I'm going to wait until somebody talks to me about this. And somebody got an attitude called security, and they called the sheriff. Yeah, it, it was really, really they crazy. Arrest, uh, and there's horrible video of her on the floor tussling with all these That's guys. That's right, because she has a one-year-old child. They That's what I forgot about. rip the child out of her arms yeah. and take her to jail. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a horrible thing. So that yes. happened. And on the other end of the spectrum, a Baylor um, frat president pled guilty to yeah. rape. Right. And gets no or jail time. Four hundred bucks or something. Exactly. In yeah. Texas. Yeah. It's just absolutely nuts, and I just don't. I, I you know I can't even stand that. We have Michael Cohen. We know about that sentence for three years, and now he's given all sorts of interviews talking about how the horrible. Trump is. Why is anybody talking to this man? Because yeah. he's suddenly coming off like he's pious. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It reminds me so much of G. Gordon Liddy, who would you know right. talk all about right. how horrible Clinton. I mean, how horrible um, Nixon was. But let's, let's not talk about my, me and what I did. I think that's the playbook they're using, because then G. Gordon Liddy went on to have, like, a talk show, a national talk show. Yeah. It was like, it reminds he's me of a Oliver, criminal. It reminds me of Oliver North, who yeah. also... Uh, oh, he got sainted, and now he's the yeah. um, spokesman for the NRA. Yeah. Well, when all this Trump stuff started, they started interviewing Dean, which I thought was just crazy, because right. Dean is like, you know, and he was like, oh, and Nixon, and we always... Well, wait, 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 you're fresh out of jail, dude. Like, wait right. a second. Exactly. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, I hate to dump on John Dean, but if you don't remember your history, John Dean basically did what Nixon wanted to do until he was like, right. hey, listen up, give him, a hundred, give him a million dollars to pay off anyone who will keep their mouth shut. Yeah, right. And a million dollars now is nothing compared to what some folks are getting paid right oh, now. Yeah. yeah. So, and Avi, I'm sure you, you remember, I mean, do you have memories of Nixon? I mean, oh, oh sure, yeah. sure. I remember that whole thing. I remember the Saturday Night Massacre yeah, thing, which the is... The Archibald Cox. Yes. Yeah. yeah. How do mm-hmm. you know about that stuff? You were, what, like, what, 40 years <laughs> old? <laughs> history, I, re- I read it and just uh, absorb the history stuff. I see. Yeah. We had TVs in the classroom when that crap, when the uh, hearings were finally happening. Yeah. Oh, my. Yeah, it's it's absolutely amazing. Okay, so that's um, <clears throat> Cint- Centoya Brown. 
Convicted for killing her pimp is considered for clemency. This is in Tennessee. So basically, this this is a black woman who was a prostitute. She ran away from home. I think she right. was 16 years old. Yeah. Her pimp sends her to a John. Right. She, I guess the John has a gun. She doesn't carry the gun herself. Grabs the gun, kills the pimp. Mm-hmm. Is sentenced in Tennessee. I mean, she did commit right. a, a crime. Right. But I think she served 14 years of that. And now she wants clemency. I mean, it's right. not her fault that she was right. a prostitute. Right. And the Tennessee governor is considering it. Only that. They, yeah. they're, they're kind about it. They said... Just fifty. She just fifty-one years. Yeah. Not the full thing. Just just fifty-one years before they can consi- consider giving her probation. Yeah. It's it's just really really horrible. And that, and that it's not done. That one is so not done. Yeah. And the only other two things that I have. Um, the seven-year-old. We talked about this off off the mic. Right. Uh, the seven-year-old who died in custody. Right. Um, this is basically part of the zero tolerance policy that Trump has yeah, for the illegal immigrants. Uh, is it Gillibrand? Gillibrand, Gillibrand, Christian. Yeah, Christian Gillibrand. Um, is saying now that it was the family's fault. And there, she isn't saying it, but some people have been, yeah. the right wing has basically been saying, oh, you bring this sick child here, but the records show that when they caught them, they put it down that she was healthy. Yep. And it was eight weeks since she was detained when she finally got ill and died. She had 105 fever. Yeah. And was and died, and you know the record shows that she hadn't eaten, and it's just it's really really horrible, and it's just it just blows my mind. What's the other one on your list? Because if you don't have Nancy, you gotta have Nancy. <clears throat> oh, you know I didn't have Nancy Pelosi. I wanted to sort of step away, but we do all have to talk about the summit that Trump put you know, between Nancy <laughs> and Chuck Schumer. Or you know, <laughs> I thought it was called the tantrum. I thought that was. Yeah, no, it was, that was awesome. I mean, you know, Nancy Pelosi. I was actually, I mean, Chuck Schumer really was the one who sort of threw it in Trump's face. He did. But, but Nancy he was sitting there chuckling. Yeah. And, Nancy, and so he looks back, like, Schumer can never run for president, <clears throat> even if he ever had any aspirations. And he can't. Because he chuckles and he does all, it, it reminds me of Bob Dole. Yeah. Like, remember, Bob Dole, when he was the candidate against Reagan. Yeah. He's smarter. He's more experienced. He's everything. But every time he would go off script, it was just this chuckle and this just sort of demeaning attitude towards everybody else. And it's like, don't want you to be my president. And that's Chuck Schumer. I'm like, dude, okay, we get it. You're smart. And, yes, you've got a, you've got a great hand, and this guy is bluffing. We get it. Have a little decorum. And Nancy just had decorum the whole time. She was gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think about with this thing. This is going to come out because we can't detain people and let them get raped, Mm -hmm. which is what's happening, and let them die, which is what's happening, and claim no responsibility. Absolutely. At the very least, people should be taking them to court Mm -hmm. and suing the fuck out of them. That's ridiculous. Well, you know what's interesting? And I'll ask you, Avi, because I ask all of our guests, how are you living in the life of Trump and all this sort of stuff? The era. The era of Trump. But... Republicans will say, well, listen, this is a policy, you know, we've been detaining illegal immigrants, and, you know, Obama did it, and right. Bush did it, and Clinton did it. But the, the thing is, there's a law about detaining children, and that's illegal. So the loophole that Obama did was, listen, we'll put an ankle bracelet on you, just do whatever you got to do, and we'll call you back for court. For your or, hearing. If we're hearing. But if you don't show up, oh, well, what can we do? Trump is like, no, zero tolerance. Every, you're going to be detained. Mm-hmm. If you have children, we'll put them in a center, mm-hmm. which in my opinion is detainment. 
I mean, that is a euphemism for jail. And that's why they've gone through this. A lot of these these folks who are handling these kids, these ICE agents, they're not equipped to do that. Right. They were never equipped to do that. Right. How how do you feel about what's going on? So uh, the first thing is, I mean, and, and I think that this is also part of the picture, is that whole process is in, a, in addition to be to being very unjust and and being you know all of the all of the, the moral things that, that we all know about it, it's bureaucratically backed up because number one everybody quit nobody wanted to work for Jeff Sessions right so um, I I have a friend who came here from another country and uh, is uh, well he was visiting in another country and he's a U.S. citizen and married someone who is not a U.S. citizen, and they're all above board. This person has a visa, is legally in the United States as a visitor. Mm-hmm. They got married, and now they're trying to get this person, he's trying to get his partner a green card. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, he, you know, it's just, <coughs> my wife also became a citizen through a green card, and sure. th- in those days it was a year and a half. That was 20 years ago. Now it's like there's no date, there's no right. nothing. It's all backed up. So, right. I mean, these folks are not leaving that camp anytime soon. Right. So basically what we're doing, and, you know, I hate to cheapen the word by using a word from another context, but we're putting these guys in concentration camps. Yeah, that's, 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 that's what it is. is. And that, Kamala, that, Har- Kamala Harris compared ICE agents to the, I think it was the SS. Yeah. 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 And, but, you know, everybody gets mad when you say it, and people hate when you make the Nazi comparison, and I understand why one shouldn't, because it cheapens the memories right. of the Holocaust and everything. But at the same time, there's no difference between taking, you know, a bunch of people who are legal residents deciding that they're illegal and throwing them into a concentration camp where they eventually die. With no due process. With no due process. And taking a bunch of folks who are coming with the intent of uh, asking for asylum, which is a legal process. That's what one does. One presents oneself at the border and says, I'm here for asylum. That's what they do. Investigate, yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think it's just awful. And it reminds me of stories. I don't know... uh, if you're aware of the story that of the, the the ship that arrived during World War II, filled oh, with Nazi yes. the name escaped. Yes. I think it was called the Saint Louis. Yes, yes. And it arrived, and Truman said, "No, you can't." And they sailed down to Florida, and they said, "No, you can't." And they landed in Cuba, and Cuba deported them, and they ended up back in Europe, and most of them died in the Holocaust. Yeah. Now, this wasn't Truman, right? This was Roosevelt, what, right? Oh, this was Roosevelt. I do make yeah. point. Yes, this yeah. was Roosevelt. Yeah. 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 But no, I, I, I agree with the history. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, I mean, yeah, I think you know the history as, as well, probably even better than I do, because I'm sure these stories are passed on, and they're important. It's amazing that this is happening now. You would never yeah. think, oh, 2018, right. this has never happened. Right. It is happening. Yeah. And it's horrible. Were you surprised when Trump was elected, Avi? I was surprised as hell was when Trump was elected. I was, I mean, it was, so I remember, I remember that I was, I can't remember what I was doing, but I was out of the house, was it, was it, no, it wasn't Halloween. It was some night, I was out of the house doing something. I don't know. What was it? Yeah. Election night. Yeah. 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 And, um, it was just, and it was like 96% probability from the pundits that right. Hillary's going to get elected. Yeah, it was right. like a slam dunk deal. And I'm like, okay, I want to see whether she gets elected by, you know, 54% or mm-hmm. by 58%. And it just, it got worse and worse as the, night, as the night went on. And I don't think any of us could have imagined, if you were to ask me 10 years ago, yeah. you know, do I think it's possible that the Russian government could throw an American election? Mm-hmm. Or do I think it's possible that you get a bunch of 
Republican candidates in the primaries, eight of them up on a stage at the same time, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. and they're talking about penis size. Right. You know, like yeah. everything right. that went down, like why is this the guy? Right. You know, I mean, there were some. Right. Why are they discussing this? It's yeah. not an oxymoron to say that there were some very capable and responsible Republican candidates during that primary, and they just got shot down one right. by one. And then, okay, well, okay, so he's the candidate. But, I mean, this right. will never fly. And it right. was obvious that the guy um, can't read and write. And yeah, he knows nothing yes. about politics and that he was lying. And that then when he was elected and he actually got into the White House, he didn't understand that they had to restart the whole White House. It's just right. basic, basic yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's absolutely amazing. So I, I feel like we're living through, I mean, we're right now there's this big hole in American democracy that's kind right. of been blown apart, and we're just getting sucked through it, and, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm still hopeful for 2020. I'm actually going to make a prediction. I'm predicting, especially if Mueller's investigation heats up, and I think it's heating up yeah. as it goes on. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a slow bowling. It's like right. if you had to boil water, and it takes a bit. Boil is starting there. Yeah. But I'm predicting, I don't think he's going to run in 2020. Yeah, I, I, there are already Republicans mm-hmm. snapping up to say that they're considering running. So yeah. it sounds like you're saying he's going to make it to 2020 without being impeached, which is interesting. <laughs> well, he, he may avoid impeachment by, by, by stepping the down. You know, and the Republicans will say, well, Senate. we don't need to impeach him if he's not going to run. Right. We'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Right. I feel, still think he can be prosecuted. If he does I know. Run. Well, that's yeah. just beautiful. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I'm loving the courts. <laughs> you know, the election was disappointing and then became – Bluer and bluer and bluer, which was nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm loving that the courts have just been consistently, for every time something goes in his direction, mm-hmm. there's three or four times where they're like, no, <laughs> no, this is just not legal. No. Yeah. Before we jump into an origin story, I know we've been talking politics a lot. Mm-hmm. There is one story that t- touches into theater or acting. So there's an actor um, for actress for the television series Elijah, Bull, uh, Elijah Dushku. Mm-hmm. So basically, uh, this, this deals with sex- yeah. Well, I have it written down. Sexual harassment. So basically, she was sexually harassed by I think the star of the, the show. The star of the show, yes. Yeah, and she was she reported it. And they wrote her out. And they wrote her out, right? And so she was like, "Listen, you're going to." Or her attorney says, "Listen, three years she could have been on this show, and this would this is what she would have earned, right. If you hadn't written her out, right? That's the money we want." And and she and they got it. she got it. X million dollars. Nine point five million dollars. Um, I have mixed feelings about that. I mean, yes, I feel good she got paid, but every time I hear about these non non what do they call it non settlement agreements or non disclosure agreements, yeah. it's like we're going to pay you to shut up. Yes. So say yes. Yeah. And I feel that's it not a, that's not a good. Uh, it, it sure it works, but it's, it's not for a good legal thing. precedent. It's not great because the legal precedent is yeah, just go ahead and pay them off. Yeah, that's not great. But the funny thing to me about all that was because I don't know the show or, or really care much about it. Yeah, it's the same day that Sandra Locke died, and mm. we forgot all about her. Right? Yeah, we forgot all about her because she was Clint Eastwood's partner, and the term palimony. The reason we know that term is because she won. She came home one day, and the locks had been changed, and her stuff had been put in storage. That's how she found out their relationship was over. <laughs> wow. And so they went to court, and they or they talked, and mm-hmm. they came up with an agreement that Warner Brothers would give her a contract because she was not only acting, she was also looking to direct. This is mid-70s, early yeah. mid-70s. Mm-hmm. Um, so she went through four or five years of them 
saying no to every proposal. She made 30 proposals. They said no to every one of them. She finally went, screw this, and she was smart. She sued him, and she sued Warner Brothers separately, mm-hmm. and they both settled. Wow. This is still taught in law school. Mm. And so she just died. And, yeah, it meant that she had no career, but I think at the time she got like $5.4 million or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and it set, it set a precedent. It was great, but it was the same sort of thing. Those were both settlements. They, yeah. Nothing was decided legally. Mm-hmm. But the term palimony suddenly became huge headline. Mm-hmm. Wow, Sauter Lock. Wow, nice one. So it's the right day for yeah. you to get that. That settlement, Mm -hmm. that was the perfect day to get it, of the day where we get to honor this woman. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's get into an order story. I should also remiss, um, I don't know if you have any feelings about uh, Nancy Wilson passing away. I was thrilled that I know who Nancy Wilson is. (laughs) Pulled up a song I'd never heard before. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh, I was looking for another song. It turned out it was uh, Dinah Washington. Mm, Yeah. Okay, this song is beautiful, though. My favorite song of hers is Everyone Can Whistle. Um, oh. Yeah, that's a, if you don't know that one, you can pull that up. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any memories of Nancy? Not really. Yeah. Not really. I remember the name. I remember some of the songs, but no. Nothing yeah. Really. Well, it's nice. the end of the cocktail era. So there were all these amazing, amazing chanteuses and these you know, sure. round singers. And a couple of them did, like, I, I think of, um, oh, Dionne Warwick. All the way into disco, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And like Johnny Mathis and a couple of others. He didn't transition. He just found a niche. I, <laughs> yeah. I think he's still alive, and I think he lives here on the peninsula. Still, no kidding. He's, he's still yeah, alive. He's, yeah. I think he is, and I think he still lives on the peninsula. And he will every now and then for what is it, KCSM? Yeah. Um, he would do little concerts no to raise money for KCSM. Wow. And I saw, you know, I he struck me as an aging singer when I was young. Yeah, he you know, I was sixty-four years old. Yeah, <laughs> but he's got such a. Cl- it's sort of like a, what's his name, Tony Bennett. Sure. Like you hear him actually sing live right now, and you're like, oh, okay, let the old guy finish his song. Okay, that was great, Tony. Get out of here. But you know, Johnny wants to stand up in front of a crowd. He still loves. To, mm-hmm. Or the last time is maybe three or four years since sure. I've seen a clip, but. Still performing. I'm like, yeah. So she's of that era. Yeah, yeah, she is. And she, and you see the pictures. She was clearly doing it. This beautiful silver hair. She was still on stage. She oh, was yeah. still doing it. Yeah, very, very classy. And it, it is. It's a bygone time of doing the American Standard, mm-hmm. was it American Songbook? Yeah. Stuff. And but with, with a whole sense of styling. Like, you listen to her and you're like, wait a minute, is this? Oh my gosh, this is that song I recognize, but. Yeah. Not in the way that I recognize right. it at all. Yeah, right. Exactly. All right. Well, transitioning from one singer to another, Avi Jacobson, singer, actor. <laughs> <laughs> so give us an origin story. So you were born in Israel. No, I was actually born in Philadelphia. Okay. And I lived in Philadelphia until uh, I was 16 years old. Hmm. And uh, I went to Israel for a summer, as many Jewish teenagers do. And I came back, and it happened to be the right moment in my parents' marriage that when I said, gee, I would really love to live there, you know, I've come back from Israel. And they really, I mean, Israel has an industry where, I mean, they need oh, to, right, but, yeah. you know, where they, now that now it's called birthright, where they bring right. Jewish, they bring Jewish right kids return, over. Yeah. And, well, there's the right of return, which legally uh, uh, provides Israeli citizenship to any Jew who shows up and says, I want to be, you know, an Israeli, and then they are the same day. But um, there's also a program which today is called Birthright and is free of charge for Jewish kids to come and see Israel. It's paid for by donations by Jewish charities, by the Israeli government. I'm trying to get my son to do it. And yeah, a lot of Jewish teenagers do it. And I did what was the predecessor to Birthright, and it wasn't free. 
Um, and I spent nearly two months in Israel, and I came back, and I'm like, Mom, Dad, I want to go back. I was just very mm. gung-ho about it. Yep. And, and the myth in our family, the family legend, the family mythology was that because I said we wanted to go, this whole family moved. It took me a long time, a little bit of therapy as well, to understand <laughs> that families don't move because some 16-year-old wants to do something. Right. But in any case, we ended up in Israel. And I lived in Israel for 27 years. Wow. From 1970 to 1997. Oh. So, so um, my, my performing uh, upbringing or my education in the performing arts was all related to classical music for a long, long wow. time. And in fact, when classical I came back, singer? classical singing, but I also, I majored in college, I majored in composition and, uh -huh. and choral conducting. So um, wow. I've, I mean, I've, I did my military service in Israel playing in the army band. I played the tuba and the baritone horn. Mm. So I'm a low brass player. Uh, uh, I studied piano for years and years. Um, and I gravitated toward um, uh, vocal performance. And I sang in uh, uh, semi-professional uh, vocal chamber ensembles and, and uh, semi-professional choruses. Here in the Bay Area, I sang in what was then called the Pacific Mozart Ensemble. Um, now they have another name. Uh, and um, then I sang with a, an a cappella quartet, a comedy and serious a cappella quartet called the Edlows. I sang with them for seven oh, or eight years. Um, and then I made the transition to theater. I had done a little bit of improv. I took classes uh, at what's called BATS, Bay Area Theater Sports. Oh, yeah, yeah. we yeah. talked about that. I'm at Morgan Payne. Are you? Yeah. Are you? So I, I submitted a script to BATS a long, yeah. long time ago. Go ahead. Yeah, I did. I did. So I took a lot of classes with them. Um, and then, uh, actually, my, my eldest daughter was here visiting, and she said, Dad, they're auditioning for this... Um, for this musical over Contra Costa Civic Theater, oh. they're doing Big River. Would you do it? And I thought, well, and I loved musicals when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. So all the musicals, the 40s, 50s, 60s, like I know them all. And then I have this connection also to my uncle who was a playwright and wrote the play that Re Reg and I were in together. Oh, so that's, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. One Ten in the Shade. That's right. Oh, which that's is right. an adaptation of The Rainmaker. That's, that's right. Which he also wrote. Right. Wow. And, and uh, so I'm answering a million questions here at the same time. No, no, it's fine. But I transitioned to theater at that time when I did that show. Um, Big River. I did a couple more musicals afterwards at Woodminster. Um, and uh, then I started doing straight plays, and I've been doing it ever since. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Um, do you have siblings? I do. I have a sister who's a year older than I am, and she lives in Israel. Well, she's kind of, she's bi-coastal, or bi, I guess you could say bi-continental. Bi yeah, bi-national. <laughs> she, lives, she lives in Israel most of the year, but she spends a lot of time in the U.S. as well. Florida? Uh, no, actually not. No cliche, okay. No, no cliche, no. Um, uh, her in-laws, uh, well, were from New York, and we have relatives in Philadelphia, and uh, she also has a son living here in, in California who's now moving up from Southern California to the Bay Area. So she's back and forth between Israel and here. Um, and then I have a then I have a, a brother as well who lives here in the Bay Area, and he's a year and a half younger than okay. I Okay. Are, are they, did they, did the theater bug or the arts bug bite them, or just you? So my sister uh, always liked music. She was always involved in folk singing and kind of, I mean, nothing professional. Um, she's great. She's sung in choirs, and she reads music, and she knows all that stuff. Um, and she still, you know, uh, sings and accompanies herself, and she's got a couple CDs and so forth. But uh, not theater, not acting, none of that. And, and my uh, younger brother uh, has gone in a different direction. He's not, he was never really interested in performing arts. Okay. So when you did, so Big River was your first theatrical or musical performance? 
It was, I did some opera when I was in college and I was studying music, um, mm -hmm. so I did some, some opera at that time, um, uh, and I had taken, you know, improv, so I wasn't a stranger to the stage, and of okay. course I had performed uh, in oratorios and lots of, you know, chamber stuff, a little bit of Commedia dell'arte, those sorts of things, but it was my first full-blown performing theater adventure. Yeah, well, it's been a recurring theme. Uh, lately, a lot of our guests, like we've had Yana Yoham, we've had um, Carrie Ann Roscoe, I listened to her podcast again, Bodhi had her on. A lot of folks who studied music transitioning into theater mm -hmm. because uh, they just weren't getting what they wanted to get out of uh, whether they studied opera. What's well, a slightly different style. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I find it interesting that there's a curiosity, that there's a like an itch that scratches where it's like, you know, I'm not getting enough. I need to get into theater. Did you feel that? Um, I did. And I, I also felt more than that I needed. It wasn't necessarily that I knew that theater, I kind of tripped over theater when I saw this audition, you know, when my daughter showed, showed me this, uh, this audition announcement. Yeah. And also because it was a musical and I have my background in music and I knew that, you know, so I thought, well, I can do this, sure. you know. Um, and then once I got into the theatrical side of it, yes, it really did attract me. And I did a couple more musicals, and I thought, wow, I really like the dramatic side of this. Mm -hmm. And the musical part, um, as someone who's always done, and I don't mean to disparage people who aren't trained as musicians, as someone who's been trained as a musician and trained mm -hmm. particularly as a composer and a vocalist, um, it was a little challenging for me to take a step into a direction where music was not the primary skill sure. of those mm -hmm. who were doing it, yeah. you know, um, so I, I, and I kept, once I got into straight theater, I kept saying, okay, no more musicals for a while, and then I kept getting cast in them, so I did Little Shop of Horrors <laughs> over at Alterano, which right I loved, mm -hmm. um, I did One Man, Two Governors, <coughs> which is not written as a musical, but we did it as a musical, because there's a skiffle band in the show, and, what did you do for uh, Little Shop? Little Shop, I was Mushnick. Yes. Oh my God, what yeah. a fun I role. loved that role, one of my favorite roles. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you now you said a relative. That's right. Because we did an interview, but when just before we did Luncheon in the Shade, we were interviewed, and you did mention uh, is your so is in Richard Nash a relative of yours? And Richard Nash uh, was my maternal grandmother's little brother. Okay. So he's was my great uncle, my favorite uncle growing up, oh. and he was just a fascinating character. Mm -hmm. And he lived in New York on Central Park West. We lived in Philadelphia. So I always associated with him with this bigger-than-life thing because mm -hmm. New York was kind of what Philadelphia wanted to be. Right. And he came from my mother's side of the family and uh, uh, the Nussbaums, that was actually. He had a ton of brothers and sisters. Um, and he, so he had this spirit of kind of the Jewish tradition and the Yiddish humor, but he had spent a lot of time sort of going in another direction, although he was firmly rooted in that. Um, I, he was wonderful as a storyteller. I loved his shows. Um, I loved 110 in the Shade. I knew the songs before I auditioned. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, that would help. Yeah. Yeah, I was telling someone <laughs> when I auditioned for Bill Starbuck because we did the Rainmaker right. uh, when I was in high school. So when I got the uh, the sheet to do the monologue, uh, How Do You Know I'm a Liar? How Do You Know I'm a Fake? I knew it. Right. I was like, okay, great. And that's one of those wonderful moments as an actor. It's fascinating that Richard Nash, nice. being a New Yorker, is writing about the Midwest. <laughs> so that's it's fascinating that he could step out of his culture to write so richly about, you know, the Midwest. And also it's about the dirt bowl, I mean, the, the dust bowl and and coming out of, because really that's what, that's what the Rainmaker is about. It's basically about people dealing with the Great Depression mm -hmm. 
and coming out of it and also, you know, dealing with hucksters who would want right. to rip you off, but also the the idyllic feeling that, you know, a miracle can happen. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost Christmas-like. <laughs> um, let's talk about the play uh, that you're rehearsing for now. Um, Oh, the white man on the bus. Okay. Because it deals with all sorts of racial things. So we have a man on the bus. Both a, ma- a man and a black woman are riding to jail, but no one knows why they're going to this prison. Mm-hmm. They're visiting relatives already. Mm-hmm. But they have a um, – you want uh, you want to think it's an idyllic relationship or an equal relationship, but of course it's not equal at all. There are all sorts of no, underlying it's not, things I'm going on. very careful not to give spoilers. So I'd love sure. to talk about themes, but I'm not going to talk too sure. much about plot lines. Yeah, sure. 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 But, I mean, when I compared it earlier on this podcast to Jordan Peele's Get Out, one of the cool things about Get Out, sure, it's a – I guess it's a horror, but – the the structure mm-hmm. is basically a commentary that Peel is right. making about liberal white folks. Right. Basically saying, hey, just because everyone smiles and, you know, says, hey, man, what's going on? Just because everybody's against lynching. <laughs> <laughs> right. It doesn't mean that they're, you know, that they truly they're understand who you are. Next door to them. Right. Yeah. I mean, we have to be very, very careful about culture and about, like, I can say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a Jewish friend, so I know all about you and right. whatever, and make all sorts of stereotypes right. in, an, in an honest effort to be close to you. But right. it's different from really knowing who you are and yes. asking questions and yes. developing an honest relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's something else, and this is something that I, I always push myself in the direction of recognizing this at any opportunity, because it's certainly not intuitive if one hasn't grown up, if one isn't black and one hasn't grown up with the experience of black people, and that is the entire situation in the United States with regard to race is a direct outgrowth of slavery. Now, you have people who say, you know, well, Holocaust, that was 75 years ago, just forget about it, move on. You know, slavery, the slaves were freed back at, well, no, well, here, guess guess what? The slaves haven't been freed yet, okay? Mm -hmm. So because free would mean that there was actual equality of right. opportunity of right. everything. Right. Um, and it is such the opposite of that situation in this country, and people do not see it. Yeah, now. yeah. Um, I don't think people realize, I certainly did not realize, and of course the fact that I grew up or, or spent most of my life uh, in another country didn't help, but I didn't understand the indescribable depth of uh, impact on a group of people who were treated as property. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it's mind-boggling to even think about that, you know? And uh, I don't think that that, uh, that white America has relinquished power. So that, mm-hmm. you know, um, I think that if you've got a guy sitting in a prison because somebody arrested him and he had two joints in his pocket, and now he's in a prison right. doing forced labor, being paid a dollar or two a day, right. to do whatever he does, pave roads, paint license right. plates, whatever he does, then guess what? That's slave labor. That yeah. is slave labor. That's yeah. legal slavery. Yeah. So I don't think much of that stuff has changed. Right. It's interesting. Boy, my mind can just go to thousands of places. There's a book that I read called All God's Children by Fox Butterfield, mm-hmm. and it talks about Basically, there was a guy, there's a guy named Willie Boskett who was in jail now. He was in jail. He's basically the first child to be, uh, to be sentenced as an adult. Right. Uh, and this happened in 1979. But it talks true. about his history. His father was in jail. Right. His grandfather was oh, in right. jail. His great-grandfather was in jail. And it talks about Put Boskett. Fox Butterfield talks about a passage mm-hmm. where Put Boskett, this is in 1900, mm-hmm. and this is the creation of the, um, the chain gang. 
basically Southerners creating these, um, what do you call them, penitentiaries, mm -hmm. and getting um, um, prisoners to do work on the roads, the right. highways. Right. And yeah, that's right. how they got the free labor. Yeah. yeah. And that's how they got the free labor. Right. And that's how they got to do these internal improvements and these yeah. state projects or whatever. And when somebody needed more people, it's like, okay, just arrest some more folks. Just come up with some new laws so well, that you, you can grab some more people. You think we don't do it today? The wildfires. They got all the guys out of the jails yeah. and gave them buckets and, yeah. you know, hoses and whatever they had to do and work on the wildfires. And they got the professional skills to be firemen. Guess what? They can't be hired they as firemen. Yeah, but they can't be hired because they they, are, they're convicted felons. Yes. So they've... they've Which uh, makes no sense. No, they weren't paid because they got their dollar a day for right. prison work, right? They got all of these skills, but they can never be as, as, yeah, as they're firefighters. restricted from yep. getting the work. And it's like, well, I could see where that could be a part of the probation program where you've done the work, you've been on the line, and you exhibited good behavior, and you're doing some programs to try and help keep you on track as you come out. Let's give you the job. Yeah, oh my. yeah, yeah. exactly. That's exactly right. To keep it on the theater tip, I want to talk about the rehearsal process. Um, now, you're working, imagine you have to do a lot of scene work with your, the actress. There, there, how many people are in the play, two? So the, there there are actually five characters in okay. the play. Okay, because I assume there's a driver as well. There's, no, there's not. There's, wow. there's the white guy on the bus. Uh -huh. There's, uh, uh, the character's name is Ray, and there is Shatik, who is the black woman on the bus. Yes. Who's playing that? Uh, that's being played by Chelsea Beers, who okay. is just an excellent actor. Gosh, I mean, it's, yeah, it's just wonderful working with her. So much to learn from her. And um, so that's... Uh, that's those are those are the two main characters. Um, there is Ray's wife. I won't say much about her apart from the fact that she is a teacher who works in an inner, who teaches in an inner city school. Uh, they have a sort of adopted son, a friend who's yep, a friend who is uh, uh, young enough to be their son and whom they've kind of taken under their wing, uh, whose name is Christopher. Uh, there is uh, his wife, whose name is Molly. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the play. Those, mm -hmm. are, those are the five. Yeah. The question that I have, because I imagine you've had to do a lot of scene work with the main other main actress. This is the uh, the b white black woman. Mm -hmm. How has that been? I mean, because you know, you it's something that you and I have talked about when we rehearsed one is in the shade. How mm -hmm. we wanted it to work and do you know scene, there's scene work that you do with the director, mm -hmm. and then there's scene work that you do outside or just you know just bonding. Right. How, how has that experience been? It's been very interesting and very intense. And working on the show in general has been very intense. Uh, I again, I don't want to let any cats out of the bag. Mm -hmm. I will say that there are some. Well, there are themes of both misogyny, man versus woman. There are themes of race. There are themes of class in the show. Yeah. So you can imagine that there are some very charged or physically charged scenes uh, off of the bus, perhaps, um, between Ray and Shatik, between uh, the, the white title role mm -hmm. and uh, the black woman who's, who's the, the black female character in the show. Sure. And um, I've always tried from the outset um, to be very protective of actor safety because, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I, I think that for any actor, well, playing any role, and in this play in particular, playing the role of Shatik, uh, there are multiple issues where threats to the character can, in rehearsal, become threats, either physical or psychological or emotional, to the actor. Right. Of course. And yeah. so, so that's been... Um, yeah. There are certain aspects also of Ray's character 
that are very difficult for me. They're hard. They're hard emotionally for me to embody as an actor playing that character because yeah. um, because they they shed light on on a certain side of the character's personality that is difficult for me to inhabit. Yeah. Well, obviously, this character is not who you are, Avi, as the person. No. Yeah. How has it been just talking like uh, like I know you and I when we were talking? I mean, and it really, I can't even compare one in the shade to this. But you and I talked a lot during the rehearsal process, and it created a wonderful bond that we had on stage. Are you finding that you're having those same conversations with uh, the actress? Yes, with, uh, with Chelsea, absolutely. Yeah, and this started even before our first rehearsal when, awesome. we, were still, when we were still in the process of learning lines. Mm. Um, uh, the director, Kevin, uh, he cast us, and he said, you know, go away for a month and learn your parts as best you can. He didn't demand that we be off book at the first rehearsal, as some directors do, but he said, I want you to come back really knowing who you are as a character cool. and getting having a sense of the story and so forth. So during that process, um, Chelsea and I went back and forth on Messenger a couple of times. We spoke on the phone. Um, and so, yes, this started from a, from, from an earlier stage than even mm -hmm. the first rehearsal. Fantastic, yeah. And I'd love to talk more, but we, we're hitting the one-hour mm -hmm. mark. Uh, oh, I, I just wanted to, without, again, having to dig into the story more, we went to the movies last night. And uh, one of the previews was for uh, If Beale Street Could Talk. And I'm feeling like there is growing a genre of film that, on the one hand, so the, the sort of historical film, especially the historical film about things like the African-American experience, these very sort of niche um, perspectives, um, I think the old stuff used to be a little too precious. And, you know, so general audiences, white audiences, weren't particularly interesting unless it was a field they were specifically interested in. And the film didn't manage to captivate audiences on its own without you coming in with this sort of political agenda. Um, but just from the previews I'm watching, this is a Baldwin adaptation of James Baldwin's If Beale Street Could Talk. You know, I've, I've seen the advertisers. Right Coleman now. Domingo is mm -hmm. in it. And, um, and they, in the preview, they actually rest in a family moment where you get to see all kinds of different points of views and tensions. And it's so clearly the sort of stuff that Baldwin loved. So that kind of dramatic element is there. It seems to be, at least from the preview, it seems to be there. Mm -hmm. It's gorgeous. I still find myself a little on the fence about it because unless, unless you allow me to have my preconceived notions as an audience member and then challenge them, but don't challenge them in a way that says you're wrong, but just put some stuff up there that makes me go, wait, wait, what? Let me think about this, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then let the story develop in that sort of safe zone so that then you can take it to the maybe not so satisfying ending, the resolution that is rooted in some kind of reality. But now you've taken us on an emotional journey. Get me into it. And I thought that was a fantastic. And then I just have to put a shout out for, um, what's it called? Uh, can You Ever Forgive Me? Which is this gorgeous film about, oh my gosh, I can't remember her last name now, Lee. Um, she was a writer, and she was a writer of biographies. And this was just like in the early 90s. I guess in the 80s or 70s, she had been a, she'd made it on the New York bestseller list at one point. But she'd gotten to the point where the folks she wanted to focus on, like at the point of this story, she's trying to focus on a book about Fanny Bryce. And I love that one of the other main characters meets her and says, who? <laughs> <laughs> and that's what her editor is trying to tell her. You focus on stuff that most of the people don't care about. Your books aren't selling. No. Um, and what I can say is, so she ends up, Finding another way to um, to keep her head above water. It's a beautiful story. It's well told. Uh, Melissa McCarthy, 
Oh, my God. If you love her Sean Spicer, <laughs> you'll love her this evening Wow, Melissa well, McCarthy. Wow. Yeah. But it's, it sounds like well, a She was interviewed on Fresh Air, and she talked about this. My yeah. wife had heard that. Yeah. Oh, it's so – the script uses her so well. It also showcases the material so well. It's slightly period, but uh, in a way that, you know, if you – like, I know for me, when I see some stuff about the 60s and the 70s, I get very critical because I'm like, I lived that. So mm-hmm. don't don't mistake 1972 for 1977. They are very exactly. different exactly. culture. Right? Yeah. Do, not, do not even. Right. Yeah. Somebody who walking through 1977 looking like they were in 1972 would have gotten a very different reaction. Yes. So don't do that. They managed to skirt around all this in a beautiful way. Plus, because her fascination with history they also capture how New York still embodies all this sense of history. So mm-hmm. it's just gorgeous. Um, and it, again, deals with some of these issues, which is partly what was coming to my head as you were talking about this, that if it's, if it's that flower that gets to blossom in front of the audience in a way that allows us to kind of slide in with our notions, then you can really hit us with it. And this is how it ended up. Yeah. You know what's interesting about pieces like this? I'm noticing... All around, I mean, you know, uh, David Stein, we had him on, and he wrote a piece, Appointment at Sonora, which was featured at the Playwrights Center for San Francisco. There are all these political pieces. It's as if Trump is giving us stuff and artists are just, throw, are just you know, compiling plays, which focuses on these issues that we need to focus on. I'm seeing it in television. I'm seeing it in movie theaters. I'm seeing it in the, on the stage. I mean, even Foreman in Paris, although I wrote it, you know, right. you know a ways back. Focuses on like race relations, you know, yeah. the, the scene with Ellen and Richard. I mean, not to, I don't want to, not even that, but, um, but also the scene with uh, Chester and uh, Fatima. That's right. And to, so basically, Chester's a black man who was hooked up with a Parisian woman. Actually, they had two He's Parisian kind of a women. cynical black man, and he hooks up with this very innocent young Parisian woman, and she, her sense of what America is. <laughs> Very different from him, and we understand and have followed his story. Mm-hmm. So when she comes at us with this perspective, you can feel how it impacts him. Mm-hmm. It's it's just it's a yeah. gorgeous way to, to look yeah. at these. I think one thing I think one thing that's happened in the arts and in the media is Trump very early on declared himself the, the enemy of the media, yes. and then as far as the performing arts are concerned, um, Pence showed up at Hamilton. Right, that's and right, right. basically yeah, had his ass handed to him on a platter yeah, yeah, yeah. in a very classy, very classy way. Yeah. That um, clip is beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I think ever since there absolutely has been, bless you, there absolutely has been this uh, kind of uh, trend where the performing arts uh, have have moved in the direction of bearing this message that's antithetical to what it is that Trump is trying to push. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah what's interesting before we get into shout outs. Like I think about uh, earlier this year, was it this year where uh, the controversy with Thomas and Sally? Yes. Yeah. When, when Thomas and Sally. Yeah. No, um, it was. It was called. It was no, called Thomas and Sally. No, Thomas and Sally. Sorry. Exactly. Yeah. And because you know you are like this. Oh, Red Theater Company. Exactly. And uh, you may have not. I'm sure you know about the controversy, but I was there demonstrating. I was handing out leaflets to audience members. You bet I was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because for those who don't know, it's basically a story. A horrible story about Thomas Jefferson and his, air quotes, consensual relationship with Sally Hemings, who was his slave. And it's like, wait a minute, this can't be consensual. Several black well, she actresses. was 14 or 15 when he first slept with her. Exactly. Right. And impregnated her, by yes. the way. Yeah. Exactly. So, 
you know, this story that, you know, um, uh, a white guy on the bus deals with race and sex relations, white man, black woman. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, it's a, something that was dealt with with, you know, Thomas and Sally mm-hmm. horribly. Right. We dealt with it when Foreman in Paris with Richard and Ellen. Yep. You know, we have a, a relationship between a black man and a white woman. All of a sudden, there's a scene where they sort of bring their own their own issues into the fray. Well, these these very different perspectives exactly. suddenly clash, and in a clash that mm-hmm. in a way that is almost impossible for them to they can't even hear each other. Exactly. So these issues pop up, and it, it creates conversations and things that we should talk about. And I'm excited about it. So we will see that that will be on fe- from February the 8th to March the 3rd at the Campbell oh, nice. Theater in Martinez. Mm-hmm. And um, what, now it's time for shout-outs. Well, happy birthday, birthday to Vera Y. A black woman actress, uh, director, producer who was in the South Bay, and she's moved away, but I think she is still doing theater today. It's her birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm stealing some from you, Angelo. Shay Angelo Acevedo sure. um, was our Chester Himes informant in Paris. His birthday was yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, Benton Green, wonderful actor. It's funny. I met him as a black man who had these gorgeous dreads, you know, down to past his shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, and now he has a shaved head. He's been working in New York for a while now. Uh, his birthday yesterday. Um, Sylvia Cratton's uh, playwright, local playwright, birthday yeah. tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I didn't know she was a playwright. I know her as a costumer, and she was on stage for Life Times Three. I think she's a writer. Maybe I'm mistaken. Okay. Uh, Claudia Rosa, who we had on this. Yeah, yeah yes, right on. Her birthday's coming up. Uh, she had the Freedom Project. Eliza O'Malley, uh, yeah. my voice teacher, does opera locally. Uh, Belinda Taylor, she died this year, but uh, her birthday will be Tuesday. And do I have any other ones? Katie Meinhold, beautiful young actress in mm-hmm. the Bay Area. Sarah Bettnell, Bettnell does theater. I'm not sure what town. I just know she's back east. Mm-hmm. I think she's in New England. Um, Armand Dorsey, um, is a, he was a Bay Area actor, African-American actor, who now is in L.A. Or he's back and forth, I think is his thing. And does David Skillman. Okay. I don't, you don't know David, do you? Another actor who, when I first met him, had dreads, you know, down to his shoulders. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, sports a beautiful, clean dome, Mm -hmm. and his birthday is Friday. Oh, and coming up, just to put it out, there's Stephen Anthony Jones, who was running the Lorraine Hansberry Theater. His Mm -hmm. birthday will be next Saturday, week from today. Wow. Okay. So uh, I have for today Doris Bumpus, a fantastic singer. She participated in. The Musical Cafe, not in my piece, uh, the Musical Cafe, I don't know if you know this, Avi, but it's a company that sponsors um, um, new, works. Yeah, new works, new musicals. So they uh, they encourage uh, budding musicians to, musical writers, to submit their pieces. And uh, so I submitted a piece and uh, last year. And so uh, I got to work with them. So... Um, her birthday, Doris Bumpus, her birthday is today. Also, Elizabeth Curtis, uh, I worked, acted with her in A Civil War Christmas. Fantastic singer. Uh, yesterday, not only was Shay's birthday yesterday, but also Jerome Gentis, who runs the musical cafe. His birthday was yesterday. Also, Michael Greeley. Yeah, I, I thought you would I uh, miss her. <laughs> She's oh, a fantastic oh. actress. She um, was Maria Callas a while back and won a, uh, I believe she won a TV yeah, award for that. Yeah, exactly. Sylvia Cratton, you took that 
also David Mosler. Uh, he is a he is a, he is a um, he runs the Awesome Orchestra. He uh, he runs um, it's sort of a group of folks who do who has a who runs an orchestra and they do performances and they actually do performances for theater. They uh, they he was the musical director for Candide, which uh, I performed in. Um, also, Claudia Rosa, okay, you got that. Um, let's see. And Kara Harold. Kara Harold is a actress and also a filmmaker. Her birthday is Wednesday, and on Thursday, Cynthia Lagozinski. Uh, she is a uh, an actress that we perform together in The Skin of Our Teeth. Mm-hmm. And that's it for me. Um, I'm going to be directing uh, Playground. And if you've got some, feel free to talk to me. I do. Time. I'm going to be directing a, a piece at Playground again Monday mm-hmm. um, at Berkeley Rep. Uh, Playground does the Typically, it's the third Monday of the month. Last month, we had to move it because of Thanksgiving. But mm-hmm. um, I forget what the theme is, but my play is called uh, Baby, It's the Zombie Apocalypse Outside. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a twisted little piece. So we didn't talk about Baby, It's Cold Outside. But okay. Oh, so yeah. We talked about that last week, but, yeah, there's a controversy going on. And, well, uh, well, we'll the radio station went ahead and said they'll play it, and they stopped fighting it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. It's, it's such a silly thing. Um, other shows, I'm looking and not coming up with a lot. So there's the right note at the Phoenix Theater. Uh, the last show is tonight. Um, Jerome Gentes wrote the book and lyrics uh, at the Phoenix. There's also the, uh, also performing The Last Night Tonight, A History of World War II at the Marsh. John Fisher, yeah, I think it's a one-man show. Also, The People's History of Next, Theater First is handling oh, that. Right. Yes. That'll be December the 6th through the 22nd. Uh, theaterfirst.com, and we'll have a link for that. Also, A Time for Hawking. I talked about that. That's in Indra Net Theater. That'll be December the 20th through January the 13th. Mm-hmm. Alan Coyne is in that. Also, Adrian Dean is in that. Right. Yeah, we did talk about this last Yeah. And Avi, and of course, we will, uh, of course, uh, I've talked about uh, White Guy on the Bus. That'll be at the Campbell Theater. That'll be, you'll have plenty of time to get by your ticket. That's February the 8th through March the 3rd. Uh, anything else? Yes, I have a birthday shout-out to Greg Mulholland. And, uh, he is an actor here, or was an actor here in the Bay Area. He no longer lives in the Bay Area because when we were doing a show together, Big River, he met my daughter, fell in love with her, and married her. And they right on. To Australia, where she was living. He's Holy the, cow! Yes, and now they are living in Shenzhen, China. And so every time anything that comes up with any of the three of them in my, you know, pops up online in my calendar or on my Facebook, by the time I see it, I'm already late because they're on the other side of the internet. So today is his birthday, unless you're in Shenzhen, in which case yesterday was his birthday. Happy birthday, Greg. Right on. Well, he'll be able to listen to this podcast, so happy Happy birthday, Greg. (laughs) (laughs) Your son-in-law, right on. Yes. All right, Avi. That's pretty damn cool. It is. Avi, did you have a good time? Yes, I had a wonderful time. This was really great. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, I've got to get you back on. I haven't done I'm an American 2 for a while, but we've talked about that. Oh, well, yeah. I'd love to do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's, 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 you know, the time for that. But in any case, I'm, I hope everyone has a wonderful holiday season, and we'll have one, uh, we'll have another uh, podcast before yeah, Christmas. Christmas yeah. <laughs> all righty. Let me do my spiel. You can find the Yay on the Apple Podcast app on all iPhones and iPads. Really, you can use any app that you listen to podcasts. You can just search for the Yay, and you'll find us. If you listen to your podcast on a desktop or a laptop, you can 
go on, uh, the, find the on iTunes. Just click on iTunes, click on store, use the search engine on the upper right-hand side and search for the yay and you'll find us. If you're an Android user, download the SoundCloud app or just go on soundcloud.com and you will find us. The yay was created by theater people for theater people. If you have a show you want to advertise, if you just want to advertise yourself, hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram. You'll find me at Reg Space Clay. And I'm at Who's Your Hoosier. Avi, do you have a uh, Twitter or a Snapchat account? Or a I have, I'm ashamed to say I have both. I never use them. So <laughs> very overactive on Facebook, but I rarely use Twitter or Snapchat. All right. Well, if you want to um, find Avi Jacobson 